way of reminder, uh, a couple of things for kiddos and those younger. Uh, there is a nursery downstairs uh, if you need um, to take you, any of your little ones down there. I get how that is uh, with screaming ones. They will scream. It's not if they'll scream, it's when they'll scream. Uh, and when they scream, it's okay to go out. It's, there's there's no, no, no shame in that. Um, turn in your Bibles, though, to Matthew chapter 4. That's where we'll be at today. Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4, starting in verse 5, we'll read 5 to 7, I'll read 5 to 7, and then I'll pray for us, and then we'll jump in. Let's do it. Matthew 4, 5 through 7 says this. This is God's word. Then the devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Let's pray. God, I'm just so reminded as I see this text, that I've been mulling over this text this week that my heart is prone to test you. That my heart is prone to wander. That my heart in itself, Lord, is so weak and so feeble that we desperately, as your people, need to cling to you because there's nowhere else to cling to. There's safety in nowhere else, Lord Jesus. Lord, help us to see you for who you are. Help us to see you for the beauty that you are. We ask this now, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Maybe you've had the experience, um, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, or even if you haven't been uh, ever, uh, you've probably experienced at some level... um, the phenom- I'll call it a phenomenon, of that one pastor described, the way he described it, of interacting with a man who listened to great preaching for decades, who studied the Bible devotionally, who even completed seminary-level courses. Just picture him in your mind, this guy the, the pastor's talking about. He says, yet this man is one of the most cantankerous individuals he's ever met. Have you ever had that experience? Maybe maybe you haven't. I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, though, you've probably experienced someone who's been in the church their whole life and is one of the cantankerous and most mean people you've ever met. And I want to ask the question, is this how it... We, we know, I think we know this is how it shouldn't be. It shouldn't be like this. But should a story like this trouble us? That's the question I want to ask us. Has theology misfired if it gives a person lots of biblical and theological knowledge without a person really grasping that this knowledge should dramatically affect his or her character? Or let me ask it this way. Is it acceptable to be mean-spirited or less to be ignoring issues of character formation if you happen to be right theologically? 
Does that make sense where, where I'm going with that? Just picture him. A very, very cantankerous man, but who knows his Bible so well. Is, is that how it's supposed to be? Obviously, I think we can obviously say no. But then what are we supposed to do with that? What are we supposed to do with a situation like that? So I want us to look at this temptation today, the second temptation of Christ today. If you're taking notes there, there should be just one paragraph at the very top. And if you get nothing else, get this. That as a Christian, you must expect others to tempt you with knowledge and to twist Scripture in opposition to truth. Yet as we drink of the fountain of Christ, we will know how to fight. Yet as we drink of the fountain of Christ, we will know how to fight. So I want us to look back, jump back to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4 that we've seen. And, and Jesus, if you remember, I'll just read them again. I want us to see the context of the temptation, which is in the wilderness. Listen to what, listen to what Matthew 4, 1 and 2 says. Then Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting, 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. And last week, if you remember, we saw how the Spirit was the one who led him into the wilderness. The Spirit was the one who led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And we saw how God never tempts a person, but he does test his people. And he, especially he tests Christ here. Now the three temptations that we're going to see, the first one last week we saw the temptation of desire. And it was to turn the stones into bread. And it, it, Satan was trying to get him to, to turn the stones into bread for his own purpose. And we saw, if you notice that first point there on your page, that this is what we saw last week. As a Christian, you must expect temptation and opposition. Okay, So we, we saw that last week. And all Christians must expect temptation and opposition, but we must trust in Christ's victory over the devil's temptation. But this week, it leads us then to this week. So Christ is led into the wilderness. He's still hungry. He's fasted 40 days and 40 nights. And now notice what the second temptation is. Jump down to verse 5. This is what we have already read, but I, I want you to notice again. Then the devil took him to the holy city, that is Jerusalem, and set him on the pinnacle of the temple. So this, this challenge from the devil has always really bothered me, mainly because I, I haven't really understood what he's tempting him with. If you remember last week, I said, if I asked you to go lick the sidewalk, you'd be like, that's not really a temptation. I have no desire to lick the sidewalk. This seems like kind of like that. Like, why would Jesus do that? Why, why, would, why would the devil bring him to the highest point? And if you see, there's a picture of the highest point here in, in Jerusalem. It, it's 450 feet towering above. And, and the devil brings him to the outermost piece, and he says, jump. If you are the Son of God, since you are the Son of God, just jump. That doesn't make any sense to me. Maybe it doesn't to you, to you either, if you're like me. What would he be doing by throwing himself off the temple wall? What would he be accomplishing? And we need to remember something. Notice, notice again what, what Satan says to him in verse 6. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, we, we, we shouldn't hear that as the devil questioning Jesus' sonship. The devil knows Jesus is the Son of God, which is what we saw last week too, that just because someone knows something doesn't mean they love Christ. 
Okay, so he assumes Jesus is the Son of God. He's assuming, Jesus, you are the Son of God, so throw yourself off the building. I would put it to you like this. This is what he's really asking Jesus to do when he says, if you are, since you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. It should sound something like this. Because you are God's Son, just throw yourself off the building, and then you will know God loves you when he lifts you up. Do you see? That's, I think that's the temptation that, that Satan is offering here to Jesus. He's saying, if you throw yourself off, listen to Scripture. He'll lift you up. He'll be the one who holds you up. You know this to be true, which would be questioning what the Father has already said of Jesus, which is, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Now, me and you know how this feels, what Jesus is experiencing right now. The experience of when you go through something challenging to be questioning, does God really love me? If God really loves me, he wouldn't allow me to go through a challenge like this. And that's the temptation, I would argue, that that the devil is playing off of here. He's playing off the reality, does God really love you? Or or if he really loves you, just just show it. it. See it, test it. See how much he loves you. He'll pick you up. And I want you to see the second point that as a Christian, you must expect to be tempted with knowledge. As a Christian, you must expect to be tempted with knowledge. Now remember, Jesus has been in the wilderness 40 days and 40 nights. He's driven there by the Spirit, and you can think of the questions that would begin to rise in your mind if you hadn't ate for 40 days. Questions as, why am I even out here? And I want you to see that knowledge as a temptation. Knowledge as a temptation. Or as Leon Morris says, Jesus had rejected the first temptation because he trusted God to supply his need. Now he is tempted through that very assurance. You can just hear Satan now bringing him to the top of the temple saying, since you are the Son of God, just jump. Show us all. Show us that you're the Son of God. Then we'll believe you. Then everyone will believe you. They'll all see. Just jump. People don't naturally ask questions like, God, why am I doing this? Why am I I in this position? Why does God have me in a season like this? We don't typically get to the real heart of the question behind the question when we ask. Those are the questions we typically ask. Why does God have me in a season like this? Why does God have me in a job like this? Why does God have me in in fill in the blank? Whatever we ask the why there. Or we sound like the people of Israel, as we see in Exodus 17.3, when he says, why did, he, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? The people of Israel, just like me and you, when we were in the wilderness, we want to know why. And the problem behind so many of the questions and the grumblings of why is this question, which is what Moses says in Exodus 17.7. As Moses named the place where they tested him, Massa, which means test, and Meribah, which means arguing, because the people of Israel argued with Moses and tested the Lord by saying, is the Lord here with us or not? 
brothers and sisters, grumbling is the settled disposition. It's the settled dissatisfaction with our place in life or job or situation that says, that wonders, is God really here with us? Let me say that one more time. Grumbling is the settled dissatisfaction with our place that asks the question, is God really here with us? Now, I want to continue to ask this question, knowledge as temptation. We typically don't think of knowledge as a temptation, but I would argue from, and you see in other places in Scripture, Genesis 2, they're not tempted just to eat the fruit. They're tempted with knowledge. Notice Genesis 2, 16 through 17, this is what God says. The, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Now notice again, the tree is not just some random, random tree. The tree is the knowledge of good and evil. Okay, so there's a reality that we can actually have too much knowledge of good, and that not be good for us. The way we usually speak of knowledge, especially in the West, is that we love it. I know people that just love learning facts all day long. They'll just, they'll just be on their phone, what is this thing? What is that thing? And that's not wrong. I don't want to say that all knowledge is wrong. But we live in a day that's obsessed with knowledge. I remember when I used to work at ABL, we used to joke we had a phrase that we'd say, I'm an engineer. I know things about stuff. <laughs> That's what they'd say. Because you think about it, an engineer, all they do, or most of us even in our careers, we just have knowledge. We're just people that something has been put into our brains that then we're to go and act out in that way. I'm an engineer. I know stuff. That's what they used to say. And there's nothing wrong with knowledge in and of itself. But I want to ask the question, can, it really be, can that really be sinful? And I would argue that it can be, actually. Knowledge has the ability to be sinful. It has the ability to be a temptation to, for us in that way. The fact that humans don't know everything is not part of our fallen nature. It's part of our human nature. I want to say that one more time. The fact that humans don't know everything is not part of our sinful nature. It's actually part of the way that God designed us. I don't know if you've ever had the experience, I especially had the experience this week, uh, when the building burnt this week. We were, we were here, uh, or I was here, uh, and I can't tell you the number of people in town who came up and said, oh, what happened? What happened? And I remember saying, I mean, the, the building burnt, obviously. Like, you can see the building burnt. And they would, all they wanted to know was, what happened? What happened? Not, not is everyone okay? They, they didn't really care about that. They just wanted to know, what happened? What happened? And it's a, it's a morbid curiosity that drives a thirst to know about other things and about other people. So knowledge can be actually very, very sinful. Deuteronomy 29, 29, it's not just knowledge about things and other people. It's also knowledge about God. Deuteronomy 29, 29 says this, the secret things belong to the Lord our God. Say that one more time. The secret things, that is the things not yet revealed, belong to the Lord our God. And the problem is, is when our knowledge, our thirst for knowledge goes, it tries to, to peer into those secret things. 
Like, why did this happen to me, Lord? Why am I here? Why am I in this situation? Humans are meant to gather information, seek wisdom, but to entrust themselves to the Lord. I find this especially true of young people that are, that are trying to make decisions. They will sit and wonder, which way should I go? Which person should I marry? And I always want to say, the secret things belong to the Lord, our God. But then he says, verse 29, verse 29 the rest of it, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed to us, are revealed, belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do them, do all the words of this law. And this leads us to the heart of Matthew 4. So, that's, so I want you to see the, the knowledge is temptation. I want you to see the temptation as well of pure certainty. So it's not only knowledge is temptation, it's also the temptation of pure certainty. Now, by pure certainty, I don't mean biblical assurance, okay? There is a, there's a biblical sense of the word assurance that we're Christians. But there's a pure certainty that I would say is actually very, 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 very sinful. And here's why. It says things like this. Unless I see it, I won't believe it. Unless I see that thing in front of me, I won't believe it. I need facts, only facts that I deem appropriate while I accept. And that's a kind of pure certainty that I would argue our whole society, especially Western society, is just engulfed in. Which is why faith in Christ is so antithetical to it. If they're so wanting pure certainty, the faith that Christ offers us isn't for them. Because the faith that Christ offers is the faith of a child. It's like a child coming to their parent. And what Satan is offering Jesus is simply this. If you'll jump, then you'll know for certain God loves you. You know how you'll know? Because he'll pick you up. And I think, honestly, in this moment, if he would have jumped, God would have picked him up. He really would have. But you know what he doesn't do? He doesn't jump. Do you know why? Because he trusts his heavenly father. Here's how you know. So I'll, I'll just leave this as a point of application. Knowledge can be a temptation. Knowledge, and there can be a temptation of pure certainty. But I would argue that knowledge, you know that knowledge is leading you down a good path. If the knowledge, if that's knowledge of God or knowledge of any other thing, if it leads you to a greater love. That's how you know the knowledge is, is good, or it's leading you in a good direction. If your knowledge about God or your knowledge about the things of this world are leading you to a greater love for God, then you can guarantee that it's good. So we need to first consider with that knowledge, is the knowledge true? Is it correct? But we also need to determine, is that correct doctrine or that correct truth leading me to a greater love? I want to jump down to um, another temptation that we may have, or I want us to prepare us for. It's it's this third one. It says, as a Christian, you must expect others to twist God's word. I want you to notice what what Satan says here again. And it's not on the screen. This one should be in front of you, though. He says, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written... Now, I want you to notice that. Jesus just debunked Satan in the first temptation by saying, it is written, 
But now Satan says, well, I know some scripture too. Listen to this. If you are the son of God, throw yourself down, for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you. And on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. Now he quotes from Psalm 91. And I want you to see first and foremost that just because someone quotes Scripture, I think we know this, but just because someone quotes Scripture does not mean they're following what Christ has commanded. I want you to, here's an example. John MacArthur has been interacting back and forth with uh, California's governor and it's specifically around the abortion mills that are going around. But I want you to notice this, this um, abortion sign. And on this sign, I want you to just see how, how this can get all twisted. The question is, do you need an abortion? California is ready to help. Not done. And then they quote the words of Jesus, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no greater commandment than these. Now this is a, <laughs> I think we're all like, it should make all of our guts turn a little bit. But we see this in many, many other spheres. That people, we, we take, they, they see Scripture taken and it's twisted. It's twisted. It's all mangled around. And that's exactly what Satan's doing here. He's taking a promise and he's saying, look, this promise applies to you. Look, here, here, use this. Use this promise. Or as Paul Washer says, I think this is very helpful, which if you deal with any non-Christians, this is the first thing they'll say. People tell me, he says, Judge not, lest you be judged. I always tell them, twist scripture, lest you be like Satan. People always will say, well, the Bible says don't judge. And yet at the same time, the Bible says that murder is wrong. What, so you see what I'm saying? Like, so he says, I always tell them, twist not scripture, lest you be like Satan. We need to test everything that we hear, including this sermon, to examine if it's in step with God's word. So we need to see, we need to expect others to twist God's word. And then I want us to see that Satan's plan is to distort. Okay, so that's all he ever does. He distorts truth in this way. Now notice, I'm going to read Psalm 91, at least the section that Satan quotes from. And I want you to listen to it. He says, for he will command his angels concerning you to guard you in all your ways. On their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And the passage that Satan quotes there is about God's sovereign control, even over the anointed one, or the one that God has put his special promise on. And the, the psalm talks about the way that God's going to deal with people who stand in the shadow of the Almighty. And the Lord is the one who protects the anointed one. He's the one who guards him and keeps him safe. He's the one who puts a, sh a shield around him or like a wall to a city. But God is not saying that this person will be delivered, has earned their deliverance. Rather, that God is faithful to the one who loves him and knows him. And Satan is essentially saying to Jesus, look at how God is. You should prove yourself that God will rescue you. The Father would even send his angels to rescue you. And I want you to see that in verses 5 through 7, that Satan is offering to Jesus another bloodless path to glory. He's offering him another bloodless path to glory by saying, if you jump off, you'll be kind of like a magician. 
People will see you. You can, you can go into Jerusalem and you can jump off the temple and people will see God lifting you up and they'll all know you're the anointed one. That's what he's offering to him. It's the same temptation, really, that Jesus experienced on the cross when people yelled, you who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself, come down from the tree. Then people would believe him, right? No. No, they wouldn't have. Or, or take Jesus' own words in the garden when, they were, when the disciples were trying to fight with the sword. This is what Jesus says, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father? And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. So it's not that Jesus is doubting what Satan's saying in that sense. He knows that if he would jump, God would protect him. But what he's saying is, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to tempt, tempt the Father's hand. So when we hear Jesus or Satan say, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, Jesus says, I'm not going to take that distorted word. So Satan's plan is to distort. Satan's plan is also to deceive. Satan's plan is also to deceive. It should be pretty clear to us that when Satan picks up Scripture, that he reads the promises of God in a very arrogant way that says, look, God's going to protect you, so use it. Use that to your advantage. And you start to see how Satan is using this text on Jesus. He's trying to get Jesus to test the Father to see just how much he's loved. Now the same thing, now Jesus is going to quote from, I want you to notice, jump down to verse 7. It's not on the screen, but I want you to notice where Jesus quotes from. And Jesus said to him, Again, it is written, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he quotes from Deuteronomy, but is referring back to an incident that happened in the wilderness. And the incident is, it was, it was when the people of Israel did not have water to drink. It was after they had received the manna, they, they were hungry, God fed them, but now they're thirsty. And they say, Look, Lord, you brought us out here to kill us. Here we are again. And questions of, does God really care for us? How do we know God's not abandoned us? How can we be sure we're not on our own again? The people of Israel were tempted in the wilderness for immediate knowledge that God had not abandoned them. They wanted to know instantly, is God still here with us? Is he still here? And this is exactly what Paul picks up in 1 Corinthians 10, like Brandon read this morning. He says, do not be idolaters as some of them were, referring to the people of Israel. As it is written, the people sat down and ate to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did. And 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble if some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. We put Christ to the test when we love idols more than we love him. And that's all, that was Israel's problem. That's mine and your problem. Now an idol, as Stephen Ohm says, 
idols are anything more fundamental to God, than God for our happiness, meaning, and identity. They are inordinate desires for even good things such as material possessions, a career, family, achievement, work, independence, political cause, financial security, human approval, romance. All of these things are good in and of themselves, but what ends up happening for many people is that these created things become ultimate things. And that's the temptation, even for Jesus right here. Satan is tempting Jesus in the same way. He's tempting him, just test him. Test God to see if, see, see, show us all how he loves you so. I once heard Don Carson, I think this is a very helpful example. Don Carson once gave the example of how he was talking with a missionary in a, in a foreign country and he said the missionary was reflecting on how he likes to picture God's love for him. And he said, I like to sometimes picture God's love for me is like, is like God holding a little birdie in his hand. Okay? And we are all like, oh, that warms my heart. That's really nice. I like that a lot. It's not wrong for us to say God's love is like this. It is wrong when we say God's love is like this, and now that he's shown me this over here, now I know he loves me. That's wrong. Do you see the the difference? One is saying, this is what God's love is like. The other is saying, look, now I know for certain God loves me. And when we do that, we're testing God. We test him when we say, like Gideon, we put out fleece out on the ground and say, if the fleece is dry when we wake up in the morning, then we'll know God loves us. We don't do that. Why? Because we have God's word here. Now notice what what Jesus quotes from. Again, jump down there to verse 7 again. He says, again, it is written, you shall not test, put the Lord your God to the test. I want us to see the fourth point here, that as a Christian, you must know God's word enough to fight back. Fight back there. I think you you might have space to write that in. You must know God's word well enough to fight back. Now, after, like I said, Jesus is quoting from Deuteronomy 6, and he's saying that just like like Israel was in the wilderness, he's not going to put the Lord to the test. And for us, in order to fight, we must have discernment. I want us to give us two, two ways that we fight. Here's the first way. We fight but with discernment. So Jesus, in order for him to notice what Satan is doing, he, must had, he had to discern this is a temptation. So he had to know God's word so well in such a way that I know this thing's false. The moment it came out of Satan's mouth, he knew this is not true. This is a wrong statement. And that's what discernment is. 1 John 4, 1 through 2 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. Brothers and sisters, it's not wrong that we seek discernment in the Lord's will. It becomes wrong when we're trying to find discernment with things that have already been revealed to us. So for example, if someone walked in here and they were truly in need. We could truly see they needed help. We wouldn't need to sit around and be like, hmm, Lord, should we help them? 
Lord, do they need, do they really need help? Am I supposed to help them? Jesus has already told us. We don't need to ask in that way. Or I don't need to go home and say, am I supposed to go home and love my wife? Do, do I really need to love her? Lord, help me see that I need to love my wife. Or help me see, I, I think I need to love her. No, it's, it's revealed to us. We love her. Why? Because God's already showed us. The secret things, Deuteronomy 29, 29 again, the secret things belong to the Lord our God, but the things that are revealed belong to us and to our children forever. Now notice again what he says. So it's, it's discernment, but it's also conviction. In order to fight, we must have conviction. Now conviction was the solid, would be the solid foundation that this is the word of God. The conviction is the bold assurance that this is the truth of Scripture. Second Timothy three sixteen through seventeen says, "All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work." So it takes conviction. Now I want to stop here. I've given many, 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 <laughs> actually four points that should feel very, very heavy. I hope it feels very heavy. If it doesn't feel very heavy, you should talk to me afterward. (laughs) I hope it feels very heavy because all we've seen thus far is how we're tempted and how we need to fight. But I have not given you the power to do it from this text. I want you to notice where the discernment, where the conviction, and where these things even come from. What is the source? How are we actually able to fight And I want you to see this last point, because without this last point, the rest of the sermon is worthless. That is no exaggeration. The rest of the sermon is worthless. As a Christian, you overcome by drinking of the fountain of Christ. You overcome by drinking of the fountain of Christ. And it could have been, the sermon could have been completely flipped on its head to say, we should have started with this one, but I chose to not. Because I want you to see, I want you to feel the weight of what this temptation is. Because when we see this text of Jesus being tempted, we always think, well, what do I need to do? I need to be better. I need to try harder. That's not Christianity. Do better, try harder. Those things are not, you'll never find those things in the New Testament. It's always, and the reason I do this in this way is I want us to see that this is the engine by which everything else comes. You overcome by drinking from the fountain of Christ. Now, I want us to notice again what Jesus says. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. Now, he's quoting from, like I said, Deuteronomy, but he's referencing the test that Israel tested God with in the wilderness in Exodus 17. Notice how God actually delivered them. In Exodus 17, actually turn there real quick. Exodus 17. I don't, like, I don't do this very often, but I want us to turn there. I want us to see it. I want us to actually lay eyes on what, I'm, what we're talking about here. And this is where God fed Israel or watered Israel from the rock. Now Moses, if you jump down to Exodus 17, verse 14, this shouldn't be on the screen, but verse 5 is where it will be on the screen. But Exodus 17, 14, so the people are crying out, and this is what Moses said. So Moses cried to the Lord, what shall I do with this people? 
they are almost ready to stone me. That's how much they're grumbling against him. They're ready to stone him. Now, verse 5, the Lord said to Moses, pass on before the people, taking with you some of the elders of Israel, and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile. Okay, so he tells him, hey, take that big stick that you threw in the Nile, or you put in the Nile that, that um, broke the Red Sea. Now, now I want you to go, and I want you to hit something with it. Notice what he says in verse 6. Behold, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, you shall stri- and you shall strike the rock. Notice what he says there in verse 6. Who's going to stand there? I will stand on the rock. That's God speaking. God says, I will stand on the rock, and then he says, you shall strike the rock, and the water shall come out of it, and the people shall drink. This is pivotal to the story of the people of God. God fed and watered the people from his very self. When he told Moses, strike the rock, what he's saying there is come and strike me. Come and strike me, because that's really what the people are doing as they grumble. And then Paul, later, will pick up and say, as Brandon read this morning, I do not want you to be unaware, brothers, that our fathers were under the cloud and all passed through the sea and all were baptized into Moses in in the cloud and in the sea and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them and the rock was who? The rock was Christ. And what we see in this passage is that Christ was the one who fed them and watered them in the wilderness. The presence of the Lord in the wilderness was Christ watering the people. And Jesus' solution, even right here, for overcoming temptation is not do better, try harder, be a better person, stop giving in to temptation. The solution that Jesus even gives here in Matthew 4 is drink from me because I am the one who has overcome temptation. The presence of the Lord in the wilderness was Christ watering the people. And in the same way, we are sustained when we drink from Christ. Remember that passage I read from last week, 1 Corinthians 10? He says, the cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we partake of the one bread. You know, as we look at Jesus overcoming temptation here, I really don't want us to think, well, I need to try harder. I need to do better. That's not the answer today. The answer is to look to the one who has overcome. The answer today for us, the way we overcome, the way we see temptation, the way we discern, the way that we see conviction, it all comes from the wellspring of drinking from Christ. And as Dane Ortland says, I quoted it last week, but I'll quote it again. Sinners are beautified as they behold the beauty of God in Jesus Christ. We are beautified. We are able to overcome temptation. How? By drinking from the water, from the rock that was broken, which was Christ. And this is exactly what Paul says in another place. Philippians 4, 11 through 13. The oft-quoted, this is what he says. 
He says, not that I'm speaking of being in any need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. How has he learned that? How does he learn it? Now notice what he says. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger and abundance and need. Do you notice that? He doesn't say, hey, you know what? I tried harder. I did better. That's what it was. No. I can do all things through him. Do you hear it? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So when we see Jesus, even here in the wilderness, saying, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test, hear him saying, friends, he has overcome the test. He has overcome the enemy. He has overcome. He has fought the victory. And because he's done that, he is able to be our satisfaction. Only because of that. And only because of that are we able to face temptation. I want us to take a minute, I want us to consider, though, what we have heard. Because the admonition, even from Paul in 1 Corinthians, is still, even in light of Christ's victory, I want you to read, I want you to hear it read again. This doesn't mean that we're not to do anything now. Because he gives very clear admonitions. He says, therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. So we need to consider, are we drinking from the cup of Christ or are we drinking from the cup of the evil one? We need to consider that. So I want us to take a minute. I'm going to give us uh, just a time to pause and consider what we've heard today and to consider, are we drinking from the fountainhead, which is Christ? Are we clinging by faith, trusting in his promise of salvation, of redemption, and of sanctification? I want us to give us a minute and, and do that. We think about your victory in the wilderness. God, when we see your victory in the wilderness, we see our own. Lord, for all those who've trusted and believed on Christ, we see the victory. We see the, the satisfaction that is offered to all those who place their faith and trust in you. But Lord, at the same time, for all those who trusted you, you urge, you, you tell us to consider, are we drinking from the cup of Christ or are we drinking from the cup of idols? And Lord, as I, pr- I pray as we put to death or stop drinking from the cup of idols, I pray that we would first see that your cup, Lord Jesus, that your blood shed for sinners, that your body broken for us is our satisfaction. Lord, thank you that you are our great provider. You are our great overcomer. And Lord Jesus, you are our great satisfaction. Help us to look to you, we pray today. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.